Jesus did not call us to start the race. He called us to finish the race. Uh, Purpose Church, as we finish up our 150th year, is a group of finishers, not just starters. We may not be the flashiest church around, but we are a group of marathoners who are finishing up one of the most effective 150-year runs in the history of the American and possibly even the worldwide church. And one of the leaders who has helped us on that marathon is Pastor Randy Gardner. Pastor Randy is beginning semi-retirement with his wife Cheryl by moving to Wyoming uh, by the end of this month. And I say semi-retirement because Pastor Randy will be continuing with us full-time until the end of the year and then part-time in January. Now, the reason we're able to uh, continue this relationship, even though he's going to be living most of the time in Wyoming, is because of COVID uh, restrictions, 90% of what Pastor Randy does is by phone or video conference. And he can fly back, we can fly him back once a month, so we're going to form a team and continue to evaluate how to most effectively uh, lead our adult care and seniors ministry as we move into the year 2021. Uh, We praise God for Pastor Randy's leadership and his ministry for 16 years, over 10% of the time that we've been in existence as a church. He was our high school pastor for seven years uh, during the 1980s, and now for the last nine years has been our senior adult pastor, and God has used him in a tremendous way, and we are going to miss him so, so much. Uh, With that in mind, let's continue our fall series, Here Comes a Comeback. And there was a great comeback story behind the scenes of the Lakers 17th uh, championship, NBA championship that happened uh, this last week. Uh, The behind the story scene that I want to tell you about is about Rob Palenka. Uh, Rob Palenka was the general manager or is the general manager of the Lakers. And Rob is a friend of our church. He attended here, uh, he's attended here several times. And he spoke here with his wife, uh, Kristen, uh, just a couple of years ago. And on a personal note, as I've mentioned before, he's the brother-in-law of Kimberly and uh, my, uh, our, our daughter, uh, Abby. Our daughter, Abby's brother-in-law is uh, Rob Palenka. And I was talking with Rob at a family get-together we had back in May of 2019 when he had just come off one of the worst weeks of his life. Uh, That whole week, he had been just ripped on sports uh, radio. And everyone across the nation was calling for him to be fired because they said he could never lead the Lakers to an NBA championship. And I remember uh, just sitting there having lunch with him and saying, you know what I'm hoping for you, Rob? I'm hoping for a comeback. I'm hoping you're going to get an NBA uh, championship and show all your critics to be wrong and that you're going to have a comeback from this awful uh, week that you've just had. And he shared with me something that was so humbling uh, to me. He says, well, Glenn, that would be great. But even if it doesn't happen, I'm still going to follow Jesus. And he referred to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the burning fire uh, furnace uh, from Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, 
the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. Uh, Rob said, I know God is able to give us an NBA title. I know I'm able to have a comeback here. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But here's what Rob quoted to me that day. But even if he does not, even if uh, they, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego says, even if we burn up in that furnace, and Rob's saying, even if I get fired tomorrow, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And Rob said to me, you know, with regard to that story, even if it never happens, uh, that's okay because I want to follow Jesus. That's the most important thing in my life, to follow him uh, with all of my heart. Well, we all know how this week how that turned out. <laughs> and, uh, and, and God honored those that honored him. And I just love this picture of Rob uh, hugging uh, LeBron James. So that's an example of a current comeback. But today we're gonna look at a future comeback, the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate comeback, the comeback to end all other, uh, to supersede all other comebacks. Now, it sounds like this would be the end of our series because how do you follow Jesus? I mean, Jesus is the ultimate drop-the-mic moment in a series. You finish with Jesus after all the other Bible characters we've been having. How, how do you follow that? But we will actually finish the series next Sunday, and next Sunday we're gonna wrap it up by talking about you and your comeback in the light of all these other people in the Bible that we've seen their comebacks we're gonna wrap it up by talking about you and how do you get out of whatever it is you're in right now and maybe a hard time you're going through and how you can have uh, that comeback and we're gonna talk about you and your comeback as we finish up next Sunday. Now about the second coming of Christ, Billy Graham said Bible teaching about the second coming of Christ was thought of as doomsday preaching. Sometimes it's looked down on as kind of old-fashioned fire and brimstone doomsday preaching. But not anymore. It is the only ray of hope that shines as an ever-brightening beam in a darkening world. We need teaching of the second coming of Christ. Let me ask you a question. How many of you feel like this would be a great time uh, for Jesus uh, to come back? There are approximately 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. And prophecy is something where the Bible says, test me. Here are 2,500 ways to see if objectively speaking, I can be proven to be true. And if you can trust me in these objective things, you can trust me in other things, such as how to be right with God, made right with God, and how to spend eternity in heaven. And so it's 2,500 ways for the Bible to say objectively, uh, measure me against history, measure me against uh, all the other things we know to be true, objectively, and see if I'm true in this. You can trust me in spiritual things as well. Do you know that every other religious book in history uh, either doesn't have any prophecy in it or, or its prophecies all turn out to not come true. The Bible is the only one with these 2,500 prophecies. Every other religious book uh, either has no prophecy, doesn't say, test me in this. Uh, it's just all philosophy or just the, the ideas of somebody, see if they work in your life or not. Or if they do have prophecy, the prophecies have turned out to be wrong. 
Um, there was a, and it's hard to get things right. It's hard to guess things. You say, well, uh, maybe the Bible just guessed all these things and guessed them to be right. But it is very, very hard uh, to, to guess right all the time, to guess right 100% of the time. You can guess, guess right some of the time, but you can't guess right all the time. Uh, there was a study done uh, a few years back of the top 10 psychics in the world. And they looked at three years of their predictions of these top 10 psychics in the world. And they found that they were right 2% of the time. So about one time out of 50, about 2% of the time, you can guess something, you can get close enough that you can say, well, that prediction came true. Uh, they were right only 2% of the time. And they found that six of the 10 psychics were wrong every single time. Well, you say, okay, Glenn, that's, that's psychics. But even scientists, the most brilliant minds of our time, scientists and experts aren't a whole lot better. Uh, here are some of my favorite examples of that. Here's uh, Ken Olson. He's the founder of the Digital Equipment Corporation in 1977. He said, quote, there is no reason anyone would ever want a computer in their home. As recently as 1977, this is the top expert in the world at that time. He's the founder of a digital equipment corporation. He said, you know what? There's no reason I can see that anybody would ever want a computer in their home. I love this quote by H.M. Warner of the Warner Brothers. In 1927, he asked the question, who wants to hear actors talk? Silent movies are just the best. Whoever wants to hear, who's going to be interested? Who's ever going to buy a ticket to hear actors talk? Um, this is another of my favorite from the Decca Recording Company when they were rejecting the Beatles' a contract in 1962. They said, quote, we don't like their sound and guitar music is on the way out. Guitar music is on the way out. Uh, here's another one, Lord Kelvin, president of the Royal Scientific Society in 1895. He said, heavier than air flying machines are impossible. It'll never work. And then the all-time favorite one by Charles H. Duell. He's the commissioner of the U.S. Office of Patents in 1899. He said, quote, everything that can be invented has been invented. Well, I, I've actually dug into this some, and there is a theory that he was just joking when he said that, but other people say, no, 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 he was completely honest. Everything that can be invented has been invented. Now, compare all those wrong predictions. Uh, compare this with the Bible. Of the 2,500 prophecies in the Bible, about 2,000 have already been fulfilled to the letter with zero errors. Uh, the odds that these 2,000 prophecies could have been fulfilled by chance without error is less than one in 10 to the 2,000th power. One in 10 with 2,000 zeros uh, written after it. That's the odds that by accident these 2,000 prophecies uh, could have been uh, come true. The remaining 500 prophecies reach into the future and may be seen unfolding as days go by. So if the first 2,000 prophecies have come true uh, after being prophesied hundreds, sometimes thousands of years uh, in advance, you can have a high degree of trust that the remaining 500 prophecies will also be fulfilled. And there are three times more promises that Jesus will come the second time than that he would come the first time. 
Now, why talk about the second coming of Jesus? There have been tremendous uh, historical benefits and effects on followers of Christ of prophecy. Uh, first of all, it has challenged believers to holy living in an unholy uh, age. It has given Christians the challenge uh, one of our five core values here at Purpose Church. It has given Christians the challenge that found people should find people. And we talk about this all the time here at Purpose Church, that everybody has an oikos, the Greek word for household, eight to 15, it, that you regularly associate with at work or at school, in your sphere, what we call your sphere of influence, the people you kind of do life with. And your assignment from God because of the second coming, because we all know uh, that we're gonna die someday and stand before God or if, or if Christ comes while we're still alive, uh, the second coming of Christ, our assignment from God is to go to heaven and to take our oikos with us. That's the most important thing, the last thing Jesus said to us before he, he left uh, to go back to heaven. And it's also caused the church to be more missions-minded, that is reaching people around the world and work for here again, this is our vision statement here at Purpose Church, everyone everywhere following Jesus. Now, Jesus said we are not to try to set dates for when he comes back. He said, uh, no dates, we're not supposed to set dates. In Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus said, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So we're not to go about setting dates. Uh, it should also, the study of when Jesus is gonna come back should not be our highest priority. Now we're gonna always find things, it seems, to distract us from the main thing that God has called us to do. The main thing is keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is going to heaven and taking our oikos with us. And Christians are gonna find all kinds of other things to debate about. Uh, when is Jesus going to come back? And, and, and what, what are those signs? And, and uh, uh, what exactly will be the order of events? And there's all kinds of side issues that we get distracted with. And the main thing is keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus said the most important thing. Don't be distracted from the most important thing which is to go to heaven and to take our oikos with us. Now, don't feel bad that we get distracted. We love to find other issues. I don't know about you, but whenever I've got a big project at work, or maybe you're a student, you've got a big paper that's due, isn't it interesting how you find all kinds of other things to do? All of a sudden, rather than write that big paper, it's suddenly important to clean out a closet or to clean up your desk. Or you've got that big project at work and all of a sudden, all these little side trails are, 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 are still available to you. You know, uh, each week, uh, most important thing that I do is to prepare uh, to preach uh, here. I have a lot of other leadership and pastoral duties, but I've always got to make sure to make that a priority. So on Thursday and Friday, I write in big letters at the top of my day timer, serve uh, keep that the most important thing because it is so easy to get distracted with even good things like returning emails or, or ministry in some way. And I remind myself on those two days, the most important priority is, is sharing God's word with my church family. And the same thing is true with Christians. We find all kinds of things to distract us from the main thing because leading people to Christ and sharing Christ with people, that is hard work. And so we will try to avoid it with all kinds of debate about little side issues that we get distracted with. Now, don't feel too bad about that because the early church, the disciples, the apostles, they had the same temptation. In Acts 1, verse 6, then they gathered around Jesus and they asked him, 
Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the date when you finally take over planet Earth? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. And then he pivots them. They want to get on a side issue. When's the date that Jesus is going to take control of planet Earth? When is that date? And he gently points them back to the main issue. It's the hardest thing to do, but it's the most important thing to do. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So dates, no. We're not to do dates. Uh, setting of dates is when Christ is gonna come back. But signs, yes. You see, trying to set a date for Jesus to come back or to spend too much time trying to figure that out is a distraction. But looking for the signs of his second coming is a motivation. It's kind of like Goldilocks with her bowls of porridge, one too hot, one too cold, one just right. Too much interest in the second coming of Christ will distract us from the main thing, which is preparing our family and friends for when Christ does return or preparing ourselves for that too little interest in it, and we will miss out on this wonderful, powerful motivation for living for Christ and sharing Christ with other people. But just the right interest in when Jesus will come back will motivate us to fulfill God's purpose and plan for our life. C.S. Lewis writes, precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we must be ready at all moments. So Jesus says to watch for the signs. Matthew 16, verse two, he replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning today, it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. He was saying to them, their version, uh, 2,000 years ago of uh, the old uh, Boy Scout um, saying, uh, red sky at night, sailors delight, and red sky at morn, sailors take warn. Well, that was kind of their version of it for weather forecasting back then. He says you can, you can read those kind of weather signs, but you can't understand the signs of when I'm gonna come back that will motivate you to godly living and to share Jesus with other people. He said in Matthew 24, now learn this lesson from the fig tree, which was a symbol for the nation of Israel. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, the signs of Jesus coming back again, you know that it is near right at the door. Now, the fig tree, as I said, is a symbol for Israel, which leads us to the second half of our study. Uh, David Jeremiah writes, in reading our newspapers today, we can see how God is setting the table, getting everything in order, preparing the way for Christ to return. So let's spend the remainder of our time looking at eight signs that the comeback could be near. And the, the important word here is uh, eight signs that the comeback could be near. Not definitely is near, but could be near. The emphasis on could. Because Christians in the past have looked at the signs of Jesus coming and have said, you know, it, it could be now. And today we see these signs and they have never been more fulfilled than they are today ever in human history. And yet that's not to say that at some time in the future, the signs might be even more clear that he's about to come back. So what are eight signs? There are hundreds of signs of the second coming of Christ that the Bible talks about. 
at least dozens and possibly even hundreds. But let's just pick out eight of them, particularly the main one that Jesus talked about, the fig tree. Let's talk about Israel, and then let's talk about a few after we spend most of our time uh, talking about the nation of Israel. The first sign that Jesus' comeback is near is that Israel is a nation once again. Uh, Just like Jesus with the fig tree illustration. He basically, Jesus was saying, watch Israel and you'll know if my comeback is soon. Jeremiah 33, verse 24. Have you noticed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose? That's Judah in the south and Israel in the north. So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. Uh, Israel was uh, destroyed as a nation by the Assyrians in 722 BC, by the Babylonians in 586 BC, then by the Romans in 70 AD, and they were scattered all around the world. And no law, nobody ever regarded them, again, to, to be a nation. No nation, a group of people has ever come back from being scattered around the world and come back and become a nation once again. And so they were no longer regarding them as a nation. Jeremiah 30, verse 10. So do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. And then Ezekiel 36, verse 24, for I will take you out of the nations. This has never happened in human history except for this one time. A group of people scattered around the world, now regathered as a nation. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Isaiah 11, verse 11. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. He brought them back, a small remnant he brought back uh, from the Persian Empire, uh, back to uh, the nation to Jerusalem once again. But now he's going to reach out his hand a second time uh, in the future to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Jeremiah 23, verse eight. But they will say as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north. This is fascinating. Uh, If you've still got a globe at home or maybe you can just do this on your phone on a map. Put your finger on Jerusalem and go due north, and your finger will land on Moscow in Russia. And so he says, uh, from uh, is descendants of Israel will come to the land, from the land of the north down to Israel, and out of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. And uh, so began this migration of Russian Jews in 1989, Uh, Russian Jews from Moscow, directly north of Jerusalem, began pouring into Israel. And today there are over 1.2 million Russian Jews in Israel today. Zephaniah 3, verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, that is uh, Ethiopia, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. 
uh, these Ethiopian Jews began arriving in the late 1980s until today, there are more than 140,000 Ethiopian African Jews in Israel today. Ezekiel 37, verse 21, and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. Isaiah 66, verse eight, who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Can a nation come into existence, he says, in a day? Well, that day was May 15th, 1948, when Israel became a nation once again. And it was predicted in the book of Ezekiel um, in 600 BC, over 2,500 years before it happened, Ezekiel predicted it to the very day. Uh, 2,500 years before, uh, predicting an event 25, over 2,500 years later to the exact day, May 15th, 1948. Isaiah 43, verse 19, see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. A United Nations report called Israel, quote, the most agriculturally efficient land on the face of planet Earth. Isaiah 41, verse 18, I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle, the olive, the junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress uh, together so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Do you know that in Israel, once they became a nation, uh, they proceeded, they've planted over 200 million trees. Since they became a nation in 1948, Israel has planted over 200 million trees since 1948. Isaiah 27, verse six, in days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Today, Israel is one of the world's powerhouses in uh, citrus fruit production. And then Luke 21, verse 24, Jesus said, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Uh, Jerusalem became Jewish again in June of 1967, following the Six-Day War. And Jerusalem became recognized as Israel's capital in July of 1980. And Jerusalem was just recognized as, as the capital of Israel by the United States just uh, a little under three years ago, not quite three years ago, on December 6th, 2017. Now, for me, Israel is just like a slam dunk that something major is going on, uh, on predicting Jesus' comeback. To me, Israel, and Jesus said, watch the fig tree. He, he said that was to be the major sign. And to me, Israel is just like a slam dunk about predicting Jesus' uh, soon uh, comeback. 
But let's look at some of the others that aren't so clear. And, and I want you to know on some of these, you, you can judge whether you think it's a reach or not, or whether it's going to be more true in the future than it is today. And, and maybe these are signs, and, and maybe they're not. Here's a second one. China will emerge as a superpower. A huge army is talked about in Revelation 9, verse 16. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Twice 10,000, and then that times 10,000. I heard their number. And so this huge number is talked about in the final things that are happening in the world in the book of Revelation. And this huge army comes from the east. In Revelation 16, verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now, we don't know whether this refers to China or not. But China does, it's interesting to note, they currently have the largest military in the world. Uh, 2.2 million active military personnel. Um, in case you're wondering, India and the United States each have 1.4 million. North Korea has 1.3 million. And Russia has 1 million. And then there's a third sign. There will be an explosion of travel and, and knowledge. Daniel 12, verse 4 but you, Daniel, keep this prophecy as a secret sealed up in the book until the, the time of the end, when many will rush here and there and knowledge will increase. A fourth thing that has to happen before the events of Revelation can take place is the entire planet will be able to watch an event at the same time. And it's talked about the death of the two prophets that were in the book of Revelation to proclaim God's word uh, to the world at that time. And it says in Revelation 11, verse 9, for three and a half days, some, that is people from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. And so there'll be a time, which is today, is now, when everybody around the world can see an event at the same time. Uh, number five, there will be earthquakes, famines, and pandemics. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 11, there will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences, which are pandemics, in various places, that is, in sundry places, in places all over the world. Uh, number six, there will be an unprecedented breakdown in morality. Paul writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter three, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, uh, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Let's just hold that there for one moment. A form of godliness but denying that it has any supernatural power. And that reminds me today that so many people, you ask them, you know, do you follow Jesus? And they'll say, no, but I'm a spiritual person. I'm into spirituality. And spirituality is basically a form of godliness, but it denies the power, it denies the supernatural, denies the miraculous, denies the, the reality of the, 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 the validity of the resurrection of Christ. It's a form of, of godliness, it's spirituality, I'm a spiritual person, but denies 
that there's any supernatural power there. And then number seven, there will be a rise in skepticism. Second Peter three, Peter says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, this second coming that he, Jesus, promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And then number eight, Christ followers will have the ability to share Jesus with the whole world. Uh, Jesus said at the, at the end of time, before Christ returns, before he has his comeback, uh, followers of Jesus are gonna have the ability to share Jesus with the entire world. Uh, you've heard me talk about this before, but the pandemic has just opened doors for Christians around the world. I mean, just our church alone has been able to reach out to people in over 120 different countries. As I said last Sunday, we have Awana in Oman. We have Rooted in Peru. Uh, Rooted is being translated into Arabic uh, for the 22 Arabic countries of the world. Our church right now is in the process of translating material that will be an encouragement to followers of Jesus and to those that have not yet committed their hearts to Christ in Algeria, Bahrain, the Comoros Islands, Djibouti, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Libya, Morocco, Mauritania, Oman, uh, Palestine, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, Tunisia, the United Arab Emirates, and Yemen. And Jesus predicted this in Matthew 24, verse 14. And he said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. John Charles Ryle writes, uh, the second coming of Christ shall be utterly unlike the first coming of Jesus. He came the first time in weakness, a tender infant born of a poor woman in the manger at Bethlehem, unnoticed, unhonored, and scarcely known. He shall come the second time in royal dignity with the armies of heaven around him to be known, recognized, and feared by all the tribes of the earth. He came the first time to suffer, to bear our sins, to be reckoned a curse, to be despised, rejected, unjustly condemned, and slain. He shall come the second time to reign, to put down every enemy beneath his feet, to take the kingdom of this world for his inheritance, to rule them with righteousness, to judge all men, and to live forevermore. How vast the difference, how mighty the contrast between the two. Are you prepared for the second coming of Jesus Christ? Are you prepared to stand before God, whether it's through death or whether you happen to be alive uh, when Christ returns? Are you ready? Are you prepared? A simple prayer having three elements in it will make sure that you are prepared for that moment. The first is sorry. Oh God, I'm sorry for the wrong, the sin in my life. I, I turn from that. I repent from that. Thank you, Jesus, for coming the first time and dying on the cross instead of me so that I could be forgiven. 
And please come into my heart. Be my savior. Forgive my wrongdoing. And from this day forward, I want to follow you. So would you be my leader, my Lord, my King? Would you pray that silently with me wherever you are right now as as I pray it out loud? Oh God, I'm sorry for the wrongdoing in my life. Oh Lord, um, I, I, I grieve over the things that have broken your heart and, and how I've hurt other people and failed to love people as I should. I'm sorry. But thank you that there's a way to be forgiven, that you came the first time to die on that cross instead of me, to shed your blood so that I could be forgiven. Thank you. Now please be my savior, forgive me, be my Lord. I wanna follow you for the rest of my life until I either die and and walk into your arms through the gates of heaven or until that day when you come back, this time not to be beaten by your enemies and, and, and killed And then you rose from the grave in that first tremendous comeback, victory over death. But the time you come back now to reign and to take over this world and to make it a just place and to make it a righteous place, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And oh Lord, thy will be done in my life, I pray. I open my heart heart to you. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And all God's family said, amen.